Give your kitchen the upgrade it deserves with Clearview Cabinetry. Clearview Cabinetry starts as a kitchen built for now and grows with you as life changes. It's flexible by design with full access cabinet construction. So you can go from doors to drawers for storage that works when you need it. Get an appointment-free design consultation and explore all our cabinet options on display in our kitchen showroom. And save big money now at Menards. Save big money at Menards. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Frank Sinatra biographer James Kaplan returns to discuss The Chairman, which covers the peak years of Sinatra's career, his incredible run of albums for Capitol Records, The Rat Pack, and how he was the connection between a president and the mob. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're welcoming back James Kaplan to talk about his book, Sinatra, The Chairman, which is a sequel to Frank, The Voice, which we talked about last time. James, welcome back. Lovely to be here, Nate. Great to be with you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this, and I just noticed what you did with the titles, that the first one is Frank and the second one is Sinatra. So That's because I wanted to line up the bindings, you see. Yes, yes, indeed. Very clever. Very clever. So let's we've we've already talked about the rise and fall and rise again of Sinatra and, and the epic um, first book. And now we're going to deal with Sinatra and his glory years, the chairman, as you call him. And you've got a quote from somebody he met um, late in the book, but I think it's a good place to start. And, and it's somebody who was acquainted with Frank Sinatra and was observing what he called the, quote, invisible protective shield. It's permanent as far as I can tell, not something you turn on and off. It's a natural human response to stardom. These people haven't been dehumanized altogether, but their ability to relate to other people on a non-star basis becomes eroded to almost nothing over time, a reverse torture, the torture of privilege. So that's the context. Frank Sinatra suffering the torture of privilege. Yeah, that's, that is Tony Bill talking. And if you've never heard of him, he was a, a he is uh, uh, he was an actor who became a director and producer, uh, and he co-starred. <laughs> Sinatra played his older brother at the time. Tony, I think, was twenty-five, and Sinatra was forty-seven. Uh, in big in family. Mo- in the movie, come blow your horn. But uh, Tony was a kid then, just uh, and and thrilled to be working with Sinatra. But a very smart guy with a sharp set of eyes who was very uh, clever about observing uh, this megastar he was working with. And, yeah, he got it exactly right. Yeah, and it's it's something that I had to keep in mind the whole time I'm reading this. Because when you think about Frank Sinatra a lot, you read the story of his life and the things he did, he's frequently unpleasant to people. He misbehaves all the time. And yet he's so famous because of his sensitivity and his artistic gift. So it's 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 always important to remember that there's a sensitive guy inside this. There's a real artist, a feeling person who's at the center of this hurricane. Yeah. Yeah. No, very much so. Uh, Sinatra was... Uh... You know, the, the the old Seinfeld joke about a riddle wrapped inside an enigma or inside a Twinkie. Sinatra was, I guess, his his molten center, his core was the Twinkie, like the Twinkie center. Right. It was it was vanilla cream. He was soft inside. He was he was ultra sensitive. He was extremely high strung. And the behavior you're talking about began early. It didn't uh, certainly the mega fame that descended on him uh, after his big comeback uh, contributed to it greatly, as we should note uh, here and uh, and afterwards, 
as always did alcohol. Frank started drinking on an epic scale uh, as he was losing hold of Ava Gardner in the early 50s. And Frank uh, continued drinking on an epic scale uh, through the end of his life. And he was a mean drunk. Yeah, and that comes across time and time again and isn't always thoughtful of the little people, to say the least. And when you're Frank Sinatra in this period, everybody is little people. <laughs> well, not quite. Frank was always looking out uh, for class. He was always trying to find uh, people who uh, he considered classy who would acknowledge him because deep down he felt not worthy, unworthy of acknowledgement. Deep down, he was not only this oversensitive, high-strung genius, but he was also the little Italian-American boy from Hoboken who had grown up uh, getting knocked around by Irish-American kids on the street, who had been made fun of because of his ethnicity, who had grown up in a time when Italian-Americans weren't considered legally white in the United States. Uh, so he had, he had about a dozen chips on his shoulders. Yeah, yeah, and there's an anecdote you tell in the book of a, a period when he's dating Louis B. Mayer's daughter, who's the cream of Hollywood society. And in one of his fits of passion, he proposes to marry her. And she says, I can't marry you, Frank. You're nothing but a hoodlum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and boy, did he walk out of there fast. Yeah. An end of relationship right there. And he, relationship. You know, and, and, and listen, so many people thought that about Sinatra and still think that about Sinatra. If I tell somebody, tell somebody I meet at a party, I wrote these books. And you know what the first question is. It's always the first question. Yep. The, the old mafia ties question, which <laughs> he had to answer at length in front of a number of commissions and committees. And, he did. And, 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 you know, in these days of political correctness and wokeness, we should acknowledge that that is innately a racist question. Absolutely. Although in Frank's case, there was a little fire to the smoke. Oh, yeah, sure. There was plenty of fire to the smoke, although he never he never. Uh, pricked his finger and blended his blood with Sam John Connors. Uh, it wasn't that way. He just unfortunately idolized these guys. Yeah, and, and it gets him into trouble. And we'll talk about that. But I want to start with the music first, because that's what made him Frank. That's what made Frank Sinatra Frank Sinatra. And he starts this period, you know, at the end of the last book, he gets back on Capitol after having been dropped by Columbia, where he had ruled the world of pop music during World War II. He falls, he's cut, he loses everything, his TV shows, his radio deals, his record contract. He gets back on Capitol and goes on this run. And I really want to emphasize, because most of my audience, you know, are rock era listeners or post-rock listeners. And you really got to, it's a lot to wrap your head around that, he went on this run from 1954 to 1962 with Capitol Records, where he puts out over a dozen albums. They all chart in the top 20. And he absolutely rules pop music. But it's almost, I mean, it's, it's a really unique thing. He is not just the man of the moment. He's, this is as if the Beatles had gotten back together in 1975 and gone on this incredible run that matched their master exceeded their first run. I mean, as if Elvis's 1968 comeback had led to a decade long run of albums that were all as good as from Elvis in Memphis. Explain that a little bit. Just how good was Frank in this period? He was, he was beyond good. He was great. Uh, it is legitimate to call Sinatra the greatest interpretive musician of all time. And not only that, but he was somebody who had an eagle eye for managing his own career. Uh, you, you've noticed, I'm sure, uh, what many people have noticed, that this string of Capitol albums from 54 to 62, not strictly, but pretty much alternates between the light and the dark, the light and the dark, the upbeat and the downbeat, the, the happy and the lonely. Uh, he has happy albums. He has lonely albums. He also was very careful, very careful about choosing those people he worked with, his producers, his arrangers, his musicians. And he idolized, uh, he had such huge admiration for musical talent. Uh, he found it in so many, but if you were playing the third violin uh, in an orchestra on a Sinatra recording date, God help you if you hit a clam because Frank <laughs> Frank would stop the whole <laughs> thing and point to you and, uh, and, and say, uh, where are you working next week? 
Ouch. And let's hear one of those songs. This is The Wee Small Hours of the Morning, arranged by Nelson Riddle, and um, written like so many of these songs. This is one of, of the few that was written for this album. It was written by Bob Hillard and David Mann, but their peak era was from the late 30s through the 40s. And Frank is very much self-consciously going back and following what you called the Artie Shaw method in the first book, and that's something Artie Shaw started doing, where they started picking out the best songs regardless of age. And this is the era, and Frank Sinatra, as much as anybody, makes the Great American Songbook the Great American Songbook. So let's hear In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning. In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep You lie awake and think about the girl And never ever think of And that was In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning, arranged by Nelson Riddle from the concept album of the same name. And Frank Sinatra, I think, indisputably invented the concept album and thought through these themes, selected the song. And one thing that's interesting is, despite having worked pretty hard to prepare for this, I could not tell you for my life who produced this record, but I know very much who arranged this record. Tell us about Nelson Riddle and why is he so important as the arranger? Well, Nelson Riddle's musical genius matched Frank Sinatra's musical genius. Uh, they had some similarities, Frank and Nelson, but they didn't. Uh, uh, they had never met until they were put together by Alan Livingston in uh, in 1953. Alan Livingston was the capital executive who signed Sinatra, much to the chagrin of his sales force, because Sinatra at that point was a total loser and a drug on the market. Uh, Alan Livingston very much wanted to match up. Uh, Nelson Riddle with Sinatra. He knew, out Livingston did, that Riddle possessed powers and background and skills and subtleties that would blend perfectly with Sinatra. And boy, was he right. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about Frank, like trying to place him in style, because for me as a Gen Xer, Frank was just always there. And and I didn't know much about the pop context of the 50s. I mean, I kind of knew that Frank was a big deal and Elvis was a big deal and it was rock and roll versus pop. But Frank is this really unusual blend. I mentioned how he's self-consciously retro in his song selection and, and artsy. Like he's he's resisting Mitch Miller and the whole how much is this doggy in the window thing that had is sometimes blamed for driving him out of, of stardom in the early 50s. But he's also a jazz singer. And you really drive that home. I mean, you've got quotes from Lester Young, the man that Billy Holiday called the president of jazz, like the father of cool, who yeah. said of all the singers – Frank Sinatra is the guy I would want. Like, I mean, it's an appeal to authority, which is a logical fallacy, but I'm not going to argue with Lester Young. No, I wouldn't either. Uh, but a lot of people did. A lot of people put down Frank's supposed jazz singing abil abilities. They called they called the rhythm of his upbeat tunes and, and albums a businessman's bounce. Uh, <laughs> what they were neglecting was that uh, Sinatra was... He was in a class of his own, and I'm not sure calling him a jazz singer is exactly right, but I certainly would never derogate him and, and say that he couldn't sing jazz. Having said that, Sinatra was uh, was really intimidated. Uh, if, if he was intimidated by anybody in the world, artistically, uh, the one person he was really intimidated by was Ella Fitzgerald, who was uh, arguably the greatest vocal jazz horn of all time. Yeah, and, and you've got many quotes of, of Frank discussing her, and his admiration is clear, although he also had some thoughts about how she could have managed her career better, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. I also want to gently argue with something you said a moment ago, uh, which wow, is that, that, yeah, that, that Frank, Frank was purposefully uh, sort of pushing or attracted to the retro. I think what Sinatra was always all about was, was great songs. And if a song happened to come from 1923, or if it happened to come from 1953, it was the same to him. He was a guy who in his concerts 
uh, made a practice of acknowledging the songwriters whom he uh, had huge respect for. Absolutely. And, and I want to talk about some of his his kind of his personal songwriting staff, a guy that he came up with from the early 30s, a guy who originally let Frank sleep on his couch and gave him spare change because Jimmy Van Usen was already working as a song plucker when Frank was at the bottom of the barrel in Hoboken and trying to get a handhold in Manhattan. Talk about Jimmy Van, Jimmy Van Usen. Chester, spends, Chester Babcock. Yes. <laughs> who's not only Frank's sometime bodyguard along with Hank Santacola and running buddy and, and procurer yes. and pimp, yes. but I he think goes much, from being, much more procurer than bodyguard. I, I, I would leave that, that one to, Sank, to Hank Santacola and then later on after uh, uh, Hank Santacola <laughs> fell out of favor to a collection of guys who were known affectionately as the Knicks. <laughs> <laughs> Jilly Rizzo among them. But Jimmy Van Heusen is there and he's initially being Crosby's personal songwriter during yeah. the 40s in partnership yeah. with Johnny Burke. Yeah. That that relationship has fallen apart. And Jim and Frank connects Jimmy Van Usen with Sammy Kahn, a lyricist, and the two of them kind of become Frank's in-house songwriting team. Yes. Uh, Van Usen uh, Van Usen was a great songwriter. He was a real character. He was a self-professed sex maniac, and he he worked a lot along those lines, and therefore was the perfect running running man, running buddy and wingman and uh, procurer for Frank. But he was a brilliant songwriter. Just look at the the, the list of his uh, his greatest hits, or listen to "Here's That Rainy Day" sometime, uh, which is one of the great glories of American popular music. Uh, a like Sinatra, in his own way, Chester Babcock from upstate New York, who changed his name to Jimmy Van Usen when he was briefly a disc jockey. Uh, it just sounded better, and Van Usen was actually the name of a shirt company, still is. Uh, Chester Babcock, like Frank, was uh, he was a guy who was highly sensitive and highly strong, and like Frank, uh, covered it up uh, with rough exterior. And the third sort of ingredient in the Sinatra musical blend. And this one is an easy one for me to overlook because my ignorance of classical music is boundless. But <laughs> Frank... Just behind you there. <laughs> Frank considered himself a student of the bel canto school of Italian yeah, singing. What's you know, that mean? Well, I've never entirely understood it. And 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 honestly, I would say that, that Frank sort of... Uh, Frank, who had enormous sophistication and range of knowledge when it came to classical music, or at least the classical music he loved, crazy about Puccini and crazy about the French Impressionists, Ravel and Debussy in particular, uh, for all of that, I think Bel Canto is a little, little bit of BS uh, on Frank's <laughs> on Frank's part. It, it may be some, it may be an attempt to sound classy. I think Bel Canto, in its classical definition, has more to do, much more to do with opera singing than with uh, Frank's style of singing. But what it, a, bel, a couple of things Bel Canto does emphasize uh, are perfect diction and uh, and and legato breath control and both of those things both of those things uh, not enough uh, noticed how crucial how central those qualities are to sinatra's greatness yeah and and i think frank was old enough that you know being crosby was a direct acolyte of opera singers like caruso and others who are essentially pop stars in the teens and 20s and frank is old enough that that kind of pop school uh, is still a big factor. And in the 50s, you know, you had Mario Lanza and others. Elvis Presley was very opera influenced. So it's it's a true organic part of his mix, that opera influence. And let's go ahead and hear our second song. And this is one written by Jimmy Van Usen with Sammy Kahn. And this is Come Fly With Me, arranged by Billy May. And again, a custom commissioned song to kick off another concept opera. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru In Lama Land 
a one-man band and he'll toot his flute for you. Come fly with me, let's take... Come fly with me by the great Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Usen, arranged by Billy May. Now, Frank and Nelson Riddle had this great partnership, but Frank, with his arrangers, just like with this woman, had a hard time being faithful. Tell us about Billy May and how what's his role in this era of Sinatra. Well, Billy May went way back to the 1920s as a trumpet player and uh, was a brilliant musician. And uh, and unlike most jazz musicians, uh, not all, but most, uh, was very skilled at writing and reading music and, and made himself into an arranger uh, where he thought he could make more money than as a trumpet player. Uh, and he was right. Uh, Billy May was a Falstaffian figure. He was big, bald, hearty. He loved to drink. He loved to drink too much. Uh, he was jolly. The music that he wrote was upbeat, brassy. He loved, he loved horns. He loved horns because he was a horn player. And that was, uh, Sinatra, uh, Sinatra used his arrangers much as a painter uses the colors on a palette. Sinatra wanted each album to sound a particular way. And Nelson Riddle gave Frank everything he wanted, uh, for a number of albums. But then in, uh, in, in 1957, uh, suddenly there was this album called Where Are You, uh, for which Frank did not pick up the phone and call Nelson Riddle, but called Gordon Jenkins instead. And uh, at the time, Nelson Riddle, who was, as I said, highly strung, highly sensitive, very emotional guy, was deeply wounded by this uh, and continued, I think, to feel somewhat wounded when Frank began to use uh, Billy May, first time on the album Come Fly With Me. Uh, but that was Sinatra. He wanted very particular sounds for particular albums. And Gordon Jenkins and Billy May and then uh, later on Don Costa and, uh, and, and various other arrangers brought him the colors and sounds he wanted. And in terms of sidemen, we, these are the kind of the most obscure figures in the story. But somebody like Bill Miller, who was Frank Sinatra's pianist for many years, is anything but a side note in Sinatra's life. Tell us about Bill Miller and his relationship with Frank. <laughs> well, he, uh, he used to call Sinatra used to call uh, Bill Miller uh, Sunshine Charlie. Uh, it was somewhat ironic because Bill Miller had uh, what would later came to be known as a studio tan, a, a chalky white complexion. He never went outdoors. Bill Miller was a genius pianist, uh, a brilliant, brilliant pianist who first met Sinatra in Vegas in the early 50s, and uh, they meshed musically. Uh, Sinatra just loved the way Miller played, and uh, and Miller loved the way Sinatra sang. Their relationship was not always an easy one. Uh, Bill Miller, much as Jilly Rizzo would when Jilly Rizzo became uh, Frank's uh, a more or less permanent uh, wingman uh, in the 50s, much as, uh, as Jilly would, Bill Miller would get sick of Sinatra from time to time. <laughs> he played for him. He admired him greatly. But uh, there were times when Sinatra's demands and his furies, his tantrums, his, would just become too much uh, for Bill Miller. But when you listen to Bill Miller backing Sinatra, playing uh, playing solo piano behind Sinatra on uh one for my baby, the great one for my baby, one more for the road. Uh, you're hearing, you're hearing a sort of I, the, the image that comes to my mind is is of the the DNA helix. It, it's this spiral, this this beautifully intertwined spiral of Sinatra's gorgeous vocal and Bill Miller's uh, minimal but perfect accompaniment on piano. Well said. And the last pair of, of musical side people I want to get in there, because these are people he had a very unique relationship with, and they also speak to Frank's admiration and hunger for class. And I'm talking about Felix and Eleanor Slatkin, who were a, basically a chamber quartet or half a chamber quartet. These are string players, and, and they really had a big influence on Frank. A huge influence on Frank. Again, classical was 
in a lot of ways where Frank lived. He grew up hearing opera. Then he broadened his musical palette to include all kinds of uh, all kinds of composers. He was surprisingly uh, not only uh, not only drawn to the French Impressionists, but to Rafe Vaughan Williams uh, and uh, there, there's, there is a, a I don't want to digress too much from the Slatkins uh, because I interviewed Leonard Slatkin at some length, the son of Felix and Eleanor, and and he and he talked very feelingly about how much time the Slatkins spent with Frank. Frank was a regular guest at their house and had enormous admiration for them. But uh, I, I I I would love to. And, and you'll tell me if you if I'm getting too far ahead of myself. But there's a, there is there is a very funny moment on the Tonight Show, Johnny Carson and Sinatra in 1976. And you know it's 1976 because Sinatra is because Johnny is wearing the uh, whatever the hell the leisure jacket was, some houndstooth <laughs> jacket, and Frank is sitting there on the uh, on the chair next to Johnny, and Frank has. Not only the the toupon, the toupee, uh, the the very odd, all too obvious toupee, but he has the, this pair of collars. He has the disco collars, right, that are out to <laughs> out to the tips of his shoulders. And Frank is sitting there, and there, he's bantering with with Johnny. And Johnny uh, Johnny says, Frank, you know, so many romantic interludes. Uh, Happen to uh, the accompaniment of your singing, and so many, so many children were conceived to the accompaniment of your your singing. When you're in a romantic mood, uh, who do you listen to? And uh, and and Frank laughed and got a big laugh, and the audience laughed. And Sinatra sitting there with the disco collars on, the guy out to his shoulders, uh, and the and the bad toupee, uh, sitting there, and it's Sinatra. It's 1976. The Republican. Sinatra of 1976 says, "Well, you know, actually, I'm uh, I'm I'm a Daphnis and Chloe guy. I, I'm a sunken cathedral guy." He was talking about major compositions by Ravel and Debussy, and he meant it. He meant it. He wasn't showing off on TV. These uh, these were pieces of music that he heard and felt and understood very deeply. And and he brought it all together into a pop package that. It doesn't entirely dominate the second half of the 50s because obviously you've got Elvis and rock and roll. But for many adults and people who are too old for rock and roll at the time, Frank is absolutely the king of pop and rides out the rock and roll revolution and rolls into the 60s bigger than ever. And to a point where the hubris is just palpable. And let's let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And then I want to talk about some of the trouble that Frank gets into and created for the whole world by playing at such a high level. And so Frank Sinatra enters the 60s. His fall from grace is long forgotten. He's been on top of the pop world. He's been on top of the Hollywood world. Not only did he win an Oscar from Hair to Eternity, then he stars in The Man from the Golden Arm, and then The Manchurian Candidate in the 60s, plus making a string of musicals with Doris Day. He works with Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong in High Society. Uh, almost does a production of Carousel, which, as a music lover, pains me to read the story of him walking out of carousel in a fit of peak and, and canceling that deal. But he also starts doing these movies with what comes to be known as the Rat Pack. It's the second Rat Pack. Humphrey Bogart was the first leader of the Rat Pack, and Frank was a member of that. But then the second crew, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis and Joey Bishop, Peter Lawton and others, coalesce around Frank, and they're making movies. They're starring in Vegas. And it's funny at first, but there's a whole lot of humor. You keep using the phrase, you had to be there over and over again. But it's more than just wearing out his welcome over a period of time as a pop star. He also introduces the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, and Sam Giannacana, the head of the Chicago outfit, one of the most dangerous and evil people of the 20th century, introduces them both to the same possibly high-level call girl. And I want to say hijinks ensue, but it was a lot more than hijinks and could possibly have been world-altering tragedy that ensued from that. Yeah, uh, there was a young woman named Judith Campbell. I'm not sure. It, uh, the record has never been clear as to whether she was a prostitute or not. She was a beautiful, uh, dark-haired woman with 
pale blue eyes, that striking combination. And Sam John Connor, the head of the Chicago mob, was uh, as in love with her as it was possible for a, a, a brute like John Connor to be. And she became his mistress. Well, Sinatra also introduced Judy Campbell to uh, his new friend, uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy, uh, the president of the United States, nicknamed by Frank Chicky Baby uh, <laughs> for, for JFK's obvious proclivities. And, uh, and Kennedy, insofar as he could be, uh, he could have his head turned by any single woman, because there were an awful lot of women with Jack Kennedy, uh, was very taken with Judy Campbell. And there was a very dangerous couple of years in the very early 60s when there was a romantic triangle. Uh, uh, Sam Giancana was sleeping with Judy Campbell and JFK, president of the United States, was having Judith Campbell uh, signed into the White House and, and spending time with him there while, uh, while Jackie was away. Uh, it was a highly combustible arrangement, and it was Jack Kennedy's brother, Bobby, the attorney general of the United States, who made uh, his older brother very aware of uh, of the necessity for this, the absolute necessity for this arrangement to stop immediately. Yeah, and it's this book has this gravitational pull when these stories start coalescing. You know, Frank meets the Kennedys. He hits it off with with John Kennedy. Never did get along with Robert Kennedy. He he gets along with the old man, and um, serves as liaison between. Um, the Kennedy's father, who's the mastermind of the 1960 campaign, and Gianna Cana, who probably helped, definitely helped in the West Virginia primary, maybe the Wisconsin primary, definitely then helped again in Illinois in the general election and expected something from him, from the Kennedys, which wasn't forthcoming because Robert Kennedy becomes attorney general and is the most anti-organized crime attorney general in U.S. history. So there's, I just really had this feeling of, Frankie boy, you are messing with powers way beyond your control or anybody's control. You know, Frank Sinatra is so on top of the world, jet setting around in his private plane, hosting people at his luxurious Palm Springs compound, and hobnobbing with presidents and mob bosses. And it never seems to occur to him that he's mixing too much of a volatile brew. Yes, well, his grandiosity was considerable, and he, in a grandiose moment, uh, led Sam John Cana, Momo John Cana was his nickname, uh, to believe that in return for John Cana's help with the presidential election, 1960, that uh, that the Kennedy administration would be willing to go easy on John Cana. Uh, didn't happen. Definitely not. And and Frank is ultimately exiled from the Kennedy's inner circle. And this is after the humiliations that they've heaped on Sammy Davis Jr. by uninviting him to the inaugural ball and, and so on. And Frank kind of had to assist in his friend's humiliation. But then they humiliate Frank and exile him. And it sort of sets him off on this path towards becoming a Reagan Republican. Yeah, it does. I think uh, that that injury was grave. I think that Sinatra never really blamed Jack Kennedy for that uh, humiliation. The humiliation, just uh, to, to say it quickly, had to do with a, uh, a little field trip the president, President Kennedy, was going to make in the spring of 1962 to the West Coast, ostensibly to review a military installation, uh, uh, but in reality, to stay at Sinatra's Palm Springs house. Uh, and Sinatra was thrilled by the prospect, had the, had the place rebuilt, redecorated, had, had phone lines, uh, a special hotline installed for the president. And then all of a sudden, <clears throat> Jack Kennedy's brother, Bobby, attorney general of the United States, says to his brother, you can't go to Frank Sinatra's house. Uh, because Frank Sinatra is friends with Sam Giancana and has hosted Sam Giancana in the very same house you're going to. And there's been this three-way relationship. With, you can't go. You can't stop there. And so this uh, scheduled and publicized stop by the president at, uh, at Sinatra's Palm Springs home was canceled. 
Um, he wound up staying at Bing Crosby's instead. Ouch. <laughs> it was like double humiliation to Sinatra. Very public, very big. Sinatra never blamed Jack Kennedy for it. He blamed Bobby Kennedy for it, whom he hated. Uh, he, and uh, he, he felt Bobby Kennedy was a prig and uh, a Puritan and a prig. And he certainly held it against the, the messenger of the bad news, Peter Lawford. Yeah, who's exiled from the Rat Pack and loses movie roles and, and never gets back into Frank's good graces. And the other big thing that happens in Frank's personal life shortly after that, and this is one of those moments where it absolutely knocks him off the pedestal. This After this happened, he's never quite the same again. And I'm talking about the kidnapping of his son, Frank Sinatra Jr., by classmates of Nancy Sinatra at their pretty elite um, Hollywood high school. Yeah, it was a couple of bozos who uh, who thought they would. I don't know how they thought they could ever pull off this crime, but they kind of thought they would pull off this crime. There was a, a one one guy who was a little bit crazy and and uh, kind of grandiose himself, who felt that he was brilliant enough to to bring this off. And eerily enough, this kidnapping uh, from. Uh, nightclub that Junior Sinatra was playing in in, in Reno uh, happened just uh, just about a month after the Kennedy assassination, late 1963. It was a very dark time and a terrible time for Frank and for his family, who feared for Junior's life. And uh, a lot of a lot of driving around and phone calls from phone booths. And uh, that was a time Frank kept a roll of dimes in his pocket because that's how you made a phone call in those days from a phone booth. Uh, they were terrified, uh, but it, it, it came out all right. Uh, it certainly there was a rumor at the time that Frank Sinatra Jr. had actually put together, had uh, cobbled together this fake kidnapping to publicize, uh, to give him publicity as a singer. It's a terrible rumor. It wasn't true. Um, but Frank Jr. and in a lot of ways, Frank Sr. were never the same afterwards. And let's let's go ahead and hear our next song, and then we'll talk about the way Frank tried to adapt to the extremely fast-changing musical world of the 1960s. This is nice work if you can get it uh, by Frank Sinatra with Count Basie, arranged by Quincy Jones. The song, of course, is by George and Ira Gershwin. Nice work if you can get it. Holding hands at midnight neath a starry sky. Nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. Strolling with one girl, sigh and sigh after sigh. Nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. Just imagine someone waiting at the cottage door, where two hearts become one. Who could ask anything more? Loving one who loves If you can get it, by Frank Sinatra with Count Basie. And Quincy Jones is arranging. And Frank made a number of moves to try to keep up with the times in the 60s. And I don't know that this is a move that you would say he's trying to keep up with the times, but this is just something he'd always wanted to do, to play with the great Count Basie. And Quincy Jones is a young arranger that uh, Frank really bonded with. And I think some of his best work from the 60s, and maybe in his career, is this, this collaboration. Yes, certainly the second Count Basie album uh, is a glorious piece of work, and uh, and Quincy Jones did genius work on that album. And and to me, it's like Quincy Jones is this connection between Frank and not only the world of jazz, legitimate jazz that Frank was never quite part of, like we talked about earlier, but he's also the direct connection with Michael Jackson, and I, I have studied Michael Jackson a little bit, but I'm very curious what. Quincy transmitted that he learned from Frank to MJ, because I don't think you could work with two people of that magnitude and not think, kid, I know somebody who's been through what you're going through, and here's what he did, or you know, here's how, how Frank did it. I'd love to know more about... Um, I the- would, too. I would, I would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall to hear some of those conversations with, uh, with, between Q and, and MJ. Yeah, absolutely, because we know MJ loved Fred Astaire and studied that whole era closely. He was a big student of Elvis Presley, and so I have no doubt in my mind he was a close student of Frank Sinatra as well. But, you know, Frank does that. He works with Quincy. He he also uh, works with Don Costa, as you talked about. And another um, 
Uh, by the way, uh, uh, Riddle, uh, whose who's, uh, indignation at being cut out of the picture with Frank really never totally ended, used to refer to Don Costa as Don Co-Star. <laughs> a nice little dig there and yeah. well-earned. But another guy who's a big power in Frank Sinatra's musical life in the 60s is this guy, Jimmy Bowen, who's yeah. Kind of unlikely. Frank has left Capitol. He's formed his own record company, Reprise. Um, it's not especially successful because Capitol is put, flooding the market with the vaults full of Frank Sinatra content they've got. And Frank doesn't want to have any rock and roll on his record label. And Dean Martin, even though he has some hits, courtesy of Jimmy Bowen, isn't selling as well as he had been. Tell us about Jimmy Bowen and how he fits into the 60s and Frank Sinatra brings in the Wrecking Crew and has some big pop scores, but at some cost. Yeah, Jimmy Bowen was a good old boy from down south, and he had uh, he came out of the uh, the rockabilly uh, rockabilly sector of the country and made his way to the west coast and uh, and became close to that group of great musicians, a studio musicians in Hollywood called the Wrecking Crew. And uh, he was a, uh, he was a brilliant young arranger and he had a big lesson to teach Frank Sinatra. As, uh, the lesson happened on the song, That's Life. And uh, it's a story in itself, but um, the song was brought to Frank. This was, I believe in, uh, 196 late 1966 and this was two uh, two years into the Beatles era two years into the era that had decimated the business the music business as Sinatra had known it uh, this was a period uh, in the mid mid 60s when Mel Torme uh, who could pilot an airplane seriously considered quitting music and becoming a commercial airline <laughs> because the business was uh, for those who had succeeded before was just so terrible. Sinatra navigated his way through, but he had help. And one of his big, big helpers was Jimmy Bowen. Uh, Sinatra, uh, on that recording date in 1966, uh, did a take of That's Life. And uh, after it was over, asked producer Jimmy Bowen, uh, how was it? And Jimmy Bowen, being a good old boy from down south and not being particularly scared of uh, of any man said it was pretty good frank sinatra saw red and he did not want to hear pretty good from anybody he was furious he said to bone let's do another let's do another and so they did another and the next take they did, the Fury and Frank Sinatra made its way into the song itself. He was biting off the consonants uh, that he was singing. And it, the result was a great recording. That's life all by itself. Not only brought Sinatra a, a big hit, but brought him right into the rock era in a powerful way. And, and I'm going to change it up. I was going to play a different song, but let's go ahead and hear a snippet of That's Life, um, Jimmy Bowen production, Frank Sinatra on vocals. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune When I'm back on top, back on top in June I said that's life That's life And as funny as it may seem And that was Frank Sinatra doing That's Life. Um, and that's, and that's, by the way, uh, Sinatra, who hated making movies because he was terminally impatient and make, making movies is like watching paint dry. Uh, he couldn't stand it. But in a recording studio, he would usually take as many takes as it took. The take of That's Life you just heard was the second take after Jimmy Bowen, Bowen said uh, made Frank furious. And you can hear the you can hear the energy and the fury in Frank's rendition. It's, it's terrific. Absolutely. And it's his most credible rock and roll style performance by far. But some of the other songs that Bowen had him do were very commercially successful. 
but not quite as critically successful. And Frank, for example, really hated Strangers in the Night. Yes, he said something that I can't repeat because of uh, <laughs> because it would get us both in trouble. Uh, oh, I'll say it. Uh, he uh, Frank Frank said he he always felt Strangers in the Night was about two. I'm I'm going to euphemize this was about two uh, gay men in a bar. The pickup and yeah. It makes perfect sense, um, <laughs> but it, it also gets to where Frank's not quite of his era. Yeah. And the song, you know, Bert Kampfert, uh, if I'm getting that right, wrote it, who is yes. a, a German songwriter who had had a number of big pop hits in the States. He also was the first person to record the Beatles in yeah. the early 60s. And yeah. You know, this is the most direct connection between Frank Sinatra and the Beatles, and it's a very uncomfortable one on all three parts. <laughs> well, there was that visit by George Harrison to the studio when when Frank recorded uh, something. Yes, yes, of course, which he called, you know, the one of the great love songs of the last 50 years, I think, in concert, although he also called it a Leonard McCartney song, which I don't think George Harrison liked very much. But <laughs> But he tries a number of strategies to deal with music in the 60s, not just the, the hit songs Bowen brings him. Like he does a duet, something stupid with his daughter, Nancy. They call and, it the incest song. Yes. And it's it's a yeah. When looked at that way, it can be quite uncomfortable. Um, but he also he also does this album that I think is a result of his aspiring after class because he's become friends with this guy Bennett Kerf who was a big time New York publisher I think he was the head of Random House yes. and the the epitome of classy society and Frank was married married to Mia Farrow who's 19 and yet he's spending most of his time with people who are 10 years older than him like the Kerfs and and other Hollywood royalty and Bennett Kerf leads him to Rod McEwen who's a very 60s phenomenon that I've had a but, good chunk of our audience mercifully has no idea who or what Rod McEwen was. Tell us who was this guy and why did Frank Sinatra do a whole album of his work? Well, Sinatra, uh, Rod McEwen was a poet uh, who sold millions of books. Uh, and uh, he was he was a media figure of uh, the 1960s. He was uh, handsome in a very rugged, rough-hewn sort of way, but extremely sensitive, and wrote these poems, uh, so to speak, that were really more or less elevated greeting card uh, material. Uh, he certainly was by no stretch a, uh, a great poet or even a very good one or perhaps even a real one, but he wrote these poems. They got published uh, by Random House and they made Bennett Surf a lot of money and, uh, and Random House a lot of money. And Sinatra had this feeling, and by the way, uh, when it came to the content of his albums and of his songs, yes, Frank adored quality and adored great songwriting, but what he was always looking for first and foremost was hits. And so he felt that uh, if this guy was selling so many books with his poetry, why not get him, why not set some of Rod McEwen's lyrics to music and, and, and record that? And, uh, and it would sell a lot of records. And didn't, didn't quite work out. But another, another approach he took was quite clever and did produce some great records, although not big hits. I'm talking about his collaborations with Carlos Antonio Jobim, the um, Brazilian bossa nova songwriter who had the mega hit with Girl from Ipanema in 1964. And Frank does two albums, only one is released, but records quite a bit with Jobim. Tell us about that collaboration. Well, when Jobim got the call in, in uh, Brazil, his native Brazil, uh, from Frank Sinatra's office saying that Sinatra wanted to do an album with him, uh, <laughs> Jobim thought it was a prank. Uh, he couldn't <laughs> believe that the great Sinatra was interested in working with him. Uh, Jobim was uh, a genius. I don't use that word lightly, but I will certainly use it with Jobim. He was a great composer of music, uh, of songs that uh, we can call them bossa nova. Bossa nova has a little bit of downmarket connotation. Uh, Jobim was just one of a kind. Uh, and Sinatra wisely loved his music, uh, loved the sambas and bossa nova uh, songs that Jobim had written. And, uh, and 
wanted to uh, wanted to make this album. So he had Jobim flown up to Los Angeles and they got together and they produced what really was this great work of art. I always include uh, Frank Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim as as one of my top five Sinatra albums. It is a glorious, subtle, peaceful, uh, sublimely uh, uh, serene a uh, piece of piece of work and song to song it is uh it is just magnificent yeah it's really one of the delights of the music that i was introduced to uh through this book and reaching it so thank you for for proselytizing that one i've really enjoyed that and I want to talk about one last effort Frank made to keep up with the times. And this was an album he collaborated. This is as close to a rock concept album as Frank ever did. He obviously was a pioneer of the concept album, but he works with Bob Gaudio and Jake Holmes, who are best known, Gaudio, for writing and producing most of the Four Seasons big hits, although frequently in collaboration with Bob Crew, yes. their producer. And Jake Holmes, who's best known for having written and having it stolen from him, Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and the two of them had partnered on a pretty ill-advised concept album. The Four Seasons were late to the album party. Yeah. They tried to respond to Sgt. Pepper's and didn't get their concept album out um, until 1969 when it was hopelessly out of time, although it's got connoisseurs um, and I've, I've enjoyed it. It's a very interesting work. It's not peak four seasons. Watertown also has its adherence and people say, this is a lost masterpiece. What's your take verdict on Watertown? I don't like it. Uh, I never have. Uh, I never have. I am, I am a, uh, a connoisseur of, um, of, of the singer-songwriter. I adore singer-songwriters. I uh, And I guess you could call it a movement, but uh, if you're talking about if you're talking about the great singer songwriter uh, and 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 writers of poetic songs of the mid to late sixties into the seventies, uh, you have to put Joni Mitchell at the top of that uh, rostrum. Uh, you have to. Um, uh, there are many uh, wonderful writers, uh, Jimmy Webb being another one of them, Jackson Brown, uh, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, of uh, of poetic. Uh, folk rock music uh, in that period. This attempted to be a concept album, the concept being a man whose wife had left him and gone to the big city to do God knows what. And it is a very earnest attempt. I will say that it's an honest and earnest and serious attempt by Sinatra to lend dignity to what he considered considerable work. And what I think, uh, I, I'm sorry, but I think in the in in the uh, in the reflection and the perspective of time passing, it just it doesn't hold up. And it didn't do well at the time. It was Sinatra's lowest selling album by far. But this is a period when he was benefiting from the failure of Reprise Records as a standalone, and and the brilliant work of his attorney Mickey Rudin who sold reprise to Warner Brothers yes. and made Frank a fortune. <laughs> right. That was that was that was akin to buying Manhattan for twenty four dollars. Uh, and getting Rudin, points on the back end. <laughs> unbelievable. Mickey Rudin strode it. But the root of it all was psychology and the root of it all was tough guy psychology. Mickey Rudin was a brute. He was a tough guy. Uh, tough guy lawyer and Jack Warner, head of Warner Brothers, was a brute and a tough guy himself. And Mickey Rudin, as one brute to another, understood uh, Jack Warner's fatal flaw, fatal weakness. His Achilles heel was that Jack Warner was desperate, desperate to have Sinatra sign Sinatra to a to a contract with Warner Brothers, have him make movies for him, uh, and. Mickey Rudin threw uh, Reprise Records into the deal when Reprise Records was a real dog. Uh, but brilliantly enough, brilliantly enough, uh, Mickey Rudin and Frank Sinatra appointed 
Mo Austin, who had previously, his previous experience was uh, being an accountant, and uh, they made him head of Warner Reprise. And Mo Austin, who had been this sort of nebbishy little guy, uh, nerdy guy, uh, suddenly took flight and became the great man he was destined to be. The the the, the fulcrum, uh, the the catapult of his greatness being the decision to say to Frank, "Listen, we have to sign Rock Axe to Warner Reprise. There's no other way." And he began with the Kinks, and and Joni Mitchell was in that mix, by the way, for a while too. Uh, but he began with the Kinks, and Warner Reprise uh, Reprise went from being a money loser and a dog to Warner Reprise, which became a gigantic record uh, record company. Yeah, I. I... Kind of chuckle sometimes at the thought of how much money Frank Sinatra made off of Jimi Hendrix's records, and <laughs> I wonder if he ever listened to him. But um, and so Frank has strode this period like a colossus. Although he had feet of clay, we talked about you know the the disasters with Kennedy and and the Chicago outfit, and you know he gets he's there for Marilyn Monroe's Dana Moi, and and he struggles to keep up in the 60s and ultimately gives up and throws himself a retirement party and calls it a day in 1971. Yeah, he was tired. He was tired, and he uh, he somehow had the feeling, somehow had the illusion that he had done enough, and he certainly had done enough. He he had done he had done 20 times more than enough over over his career at that point to hang it up and walk away into the sunset. But after about a month and a half, uh, Frank's out in the desert. He's painting pictures. That relaxes him. He's playing golf. That relaxes him. But what he realizes is the world simply cannot do without Sinatra. <laughs> And uh, he just he he missed the spotlight, and and Richard Nixon, whom he befriended, uh, and 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 did a little concert for at uh, Nixon's inauguration, uh, more or less convinced him to come back, and so so Sinatra decides to come back, uh, but but in a different skin, as a different artist than he was before. Uh, this is, so he retires, in quotation marks, in 1971. 74, he comes back with the main event at Madison Square Garden, and the album Old Blue Eyes is back. And uh, this is Sinatra, who is no longer really a movie star, because he has chunked up, his face has gotten round, the toupee has become too obvious, he doesn't photograph the way he used to, and he's not really making albums the way he used to either. Frank comes back uh, for the final 20 years of his career, 1974 to 1995, recast as a concert artist only. And uh, it's a very interesting transformation, very lucrative transformation, and the story of his life uh, of the last uh, of the last twenty five years of his life. Yeah, and I've talked to people who saw him um, in that period, and they I, weren't. I did. Yeah, and and they were rock fans. They weren't necessarily Frank Sinatra fans, but were blown away. Still talking this last weekend, telling me how incredible it was to see Frank Sinatra, and that they'd, they'd seen Elvis. They yeah. saw the Beatles, and they saw Led Zeppelin, and they said Frank Sinatra was the most charismatic performer by far that they ever saw. I saw him in Carnegie Hall 1981, and I walked into, somebody had laid an unbelievable freebie on me. I had a front row seat along with my brother. We sat in the front row. I walked into that concert with my tongue in my cheek because I was a big rock and roll fan, and I walked out <laughs> a convert. The guy was just extraordinary. There he was in his tuxedo. He wasn't. Uh, he didn't have his uh, his Vegas face on. He, he had huge respect for Carnegie Hall, and he did a brilliant concert that night. And he was yes, off the charts charisma and off the charts uh, musical genius. And thank you for helping us um, try to tell the story of one of the 20th century's great, great artists. I'm talking about Frank Sinatra. Of course, the book is Sinatra, the Chairman. My guest has been James Kaplan. James, thanks so much. This has been a real treat. Nate, it's been a great pleasure. I always love talking to you. Let's try it again sometime. Absolutely. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate returns with Brooks Long to discuss David Ritz's biography of Aretha Franklin. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.